0: It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011.
1: Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered
0: your purchases made through our links, give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions.
1: We are highlighting adaptations from season nine over at our originals page, thenextreelcom slash originals. That's the site where listeners can purchase the source material for all of our adapted film discussions.
0: We had a big Robin Hood series this season, looking at nine different versions on screen. Many were likely adapted from Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, including Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and the 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood.
1: Robin and Marian was specifically based on the ballad, The
0: Jest of Robin Hood. And we really don't have too much to say about Robin and the Seven Hoods.
1: We talked Dead Ringers for our David Cronenberg series adapted from Barry Wood and Jack Geisland's novel,
0: Twins. Have you checked out that show? You know, I haven't, but I've heard great things. Two comedies from our Steve Martin series were adaptations Pennies from Heaven from the BBC series and The Lonely Guy from the book by Bruce J. Friedman.
1: The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was part of our Colin Higgins series, adapted from the Broadway musical.
0: Spike Lee brought us Black Klansman from Ron Stallworth's memoir.
1: And we looked at a trio of John le Carey adaptations, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy.
0: Plus, all three movies in our Agneska Holland series were based on books Europa Europa, In Darkness, and Spore.
1: La Caja Fall and its remake, The Birdcage, both came from Jean Poiré's
0: original play. We also talked about Arsenic and Old Lace and Charade in our Gary Grant series.
1: All of these were based on other material, and it is all available on our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash Originals. Every book purchased supports the podcast.
0: Get the full list of adaptations we've covered and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash Originals. How do I look, Ready? A little sweaty. A post-it? I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel when the movie ends. Our conversation begins. Dinner for schmucks is over, so collect your
1: mice. I host a dinner once a month. We can do Saturday. It's not really a girlfriend type thing. You invite idiots to dinner and make fun of them?
0: Okay, that is messed up. I know. So you told them you're not going?
1: Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Why can't you just suck it up make fun of some idiots? Sometimes you
0: have to do the right thing. I saw this little guy in the street, and I was trying to save him from our masterpieces. Amazing. In the words of John Lennon, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not.
1: The only one. The only what? That's the lyric. Uh, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one.
0: I don't think so, Tim. Andy, <laughs> dinner for schmucks. We've watched Dinner for Schmucks now. This is the end of our Francis Weber series. This is the final pairing. Off of uh, Le Diner du Comte last week, the idiot dinner, and now we have Jay Roach's 2010 take on this comedic story. Uh, what'd you think? Did you did you laugh real real hard? <sighs>
1: you know, <laughs> this is where I struggle with uh, with some of these movies, and this is actually the. Uh, last, the most recent Francis Weber film that he is, that has been a translation or that he's, you know, been involved in in any way. Yes. Uh, this is the last one. I, I'm not sure if there are more uh, remakes of other films of him, of his that are in the works. I don't know. I don't, I, I'd hate to see this as the, <laughs> the last one going out because I really struggle with this film. It has its moments. It does have its moments. But, uh, you know, last week we were talking about when I watched The Birdcage for the first time, I was really surprised at how much a faithful remake it was of La Caja Fall. It was a very kind of faithful retelling of the story. Yes, they expanded some characters, made the story a little bigger, but it was the same story. It had the same beats throughout. This film is an example of kind of what I maybe was expecting with that one, where hollywood comes in takes an original idea, twists it up and does something else with it and then delivers that as the uh as the quote remake. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't know. I I really struggled with this because I feel like the original was just a straight up farce. It had characters that were broad, not necessarily a likable uh, you know, character in our in the the uh, the main character of the story, but they worked really well because they were so farcical, both of them. In this film, the Americans came in and said, you know what? It's a little too farcical. We can't have a lead that's that unlikable. We need to make our lead likable. Let's get Paul Rudd in it and let's rewrite it so he's not a regular of this dinner for schmucks. He's, this is his first time and it's he's invited because of this opportunity for a promotion at work. And he's at odds with the decision. And just by doing that, and there are other elements too, but just by that addition to the story, I felt like, well, okay, but now you've done what so many people complain about when you have Hollywoodized the mm-hmm. the story and you have made it into something that it didn't need to be because it was a straight-up farce and it worked that way, now it's just this kind of this schmaltzy Hollywood story about this guy who is having these struggles with this this whole decision of his. And I I feel like that was... There are other issues that I have, but I, I feel like just that change... As much as I love Paul Rudd and and Steve Carell, as much as I love the two of them together, and as much as I buy into their kind of their connection by the end of the film, I just I was like, why? Why did we have to go this route with this film?
0: I look at Paul Rudd. And I almost think that in in making him in attempting to make him more likable, they've made him less likable for me. They've made him, first of all, anemic in the second half of the film. But in the first half of the film, they've made him aspirational to the to a fault. Right. They've made him a guy who is put who is lying to his girlfriend, who is is scheming because, you know, he doesn't. He He's willing he's demonstrating that he's willing to bend over backwards in a in a, a deeply uncomfortable way to join this dinner all for that uh, e- that brass ring of Western accomplishment. Right. He works in big finance. He's like he he's aspires to be the one percent. Right. Which doesn't age well. And in a in a movie like this, like here we are 10 years later. This guy's the villain like in in our movies today, right? I mean, this guy he's the bad guy and here he's meant to be this likable guy on a roller coaster of uh new friendship and I f- I find that like uh, it it just is not held up for me. The the gags aren't funny enough and they don't hold up for me. But I think the bigger problem that I have is with our schmuck what they have done to Steve Carell. Uh I don't know if it's how he uh if it's his interpretation of the the original material I was skimming through the screenplay earlier today and um I I didn't read it the way he portrayed it but they made him come off like much more of a sort of manipulative uh he has this deeply hard edge around him um I, I don't I don't know what it is but I found him there's none of that affability that I had with uh the our you know idiot in the last movie. Uh, This Steve Carell's performance I found was just way too abrasive to even begin to get the joke that we're supposed to get between these two guys. And uh, I just that was sort of lost on me. Roger Ebert
1: liked this film. He gave it three out of four. Let me just read this uh, a few bits of his Uh, review because I found it uh, interesting the way that he read exactly what it is you're talking about. Dinner for Schmucks was inspired by Francis Weber's French film, The Dinner Game, which was an enormous hit in France, but seemed to shade on the mean side. The genius of this version, he's calling this genius, uh, depends on the performance by Steve Carell, who plays Barry Speck as a man impervious to insult and utterly at peace with himself. He's truly a transcendent idiot. He goes on to say, one of the reasons we love the great eccentrics in Dickens, I believe, is that they're so pleased with themselves. You cannot be a great eccentric if you're not a happy one. Otherwise, there's no fun in it. And I I can't help but feel like, uh, I don't know, maybe it's just not for us. Because I'm with you, I don't see what Ebert sees with Carell. I, he's an idiot. Is he a transcendent idiot? No, I just think that he's he's a comedic, farcical idiot past the point of comedy. Like it's he's taken it to such an extreme that I just like struggle with laughing at anything. I'm just like I, he's so just. There's just so much that I just he turns it into a character that I completely don't even buy. I just don't even see a semblance of reality in this character, and that I, I know farce is big and broad, but I feel like there's a point where it shouldn't pass because then it just becomes unbelievable still. And I feel like this film passed it.
0: The problem with it here is that there's no runway for these characters to actually grow on us in a way that is uh, sort of sublime, right? So I, I would suggest that there is an attempt at exactly what Ebert saw at the dinner, right? The resolution of the dinner. And we need to talk about that because we spend a lot more time at the dinner, certainly more time than Uh, in the last film at the the idiot's dinner and there is that sense of um you know attempting to resolve that that the the uh uh the why the wisdom of the fool uh in in that scene and i feel like if i liked these characters more Leading up to that, it would be an earned resolution, and as such, it sort of struck me out of nowhere since when do these characters find that ultimate wisdom of being so sure of themselves of being so protective of the creative ones, the fools the the jesters uh, i I found it utterly sort of inconceivable by the time we actually get to the dinner and uh was was super frustrated
1: and you know i was reading through some people's reviews and a lot of different reviews were like oh by the time we get to the dinner the comedy really hits in high gear and i'm like god really because i felt yeah. like it just went to this point where i was like i wasn't laughing at all i was just like looking at the screen and just kind of like wow They are pushing so far with everything, with all of these, quote, idiots and all of the the, you know, straight people who have brought them that I'm just like, I just I struggle buying any of them. And it was just it it made the ending, especially when we get to the whole mind control versus brain control battle. And I'm like, this is is
0: this a thing? Oh, God. Galifianakis was a just completely ill-conceived addition to this movie. Yeah,
1: I I really appreciated the through line of the tax collector or the tax auditor in the previous film and the way that that played out. And I felt like the the
0: extension of it here was just, it, it just was a little much for me. A little much. It was yeah. extraordinary. I, it is. It made much. my skin crawl. But, but that's. A, I, I want to go back to the dinner though, because the the f- initial sort of stab at redemption is when, for me, is when Carell's character uh, Tim uh, Barry gets to stand up and start stacking all his boxes, and he does his little monologue, uh, uh, and and shows all the little dioramas. Uh, did did you get the same thing I I got out of that? Like, oh, they're they're trying to resolve. And did you feel a heartbeat? in the film? Or, or was it just too little too late?
1: No, I mean, I, I do. And I mean, I, I don't think that this film is a complete failure. I do think that there is a story that works where you have this, car- this guy who brings this, uh, you know, Tim, who decides I'm going to bring this guy, Barry, to this party. And he's got guilt and everything. But by the time we get to the end, I buy his transition. I buy that conversation he has with Carell about, you know, you're an earwig, you're, you you have brain control. Like I I buy his conversations. I buy their relationship. I, I do feel like that worked. And that's I think part of the issue that I have with it. I mean it's 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 fine Hollywood writing. I think that they're able to tell that story well, but it didn't need to be there. And that's, I think the struggle I have with it is that they felt that we can't just do a straight up farce. We have to make a character, uh, you know, redeemable and we have to have this journey for him and he's a good guy, but he makes a bad decision. And at the end he has to have this change. this, you know, this change in his, in his conscience that, that lets him speak for this idiot. You know, it just, it ended up feeling so constructed. And I feel like that might be my issue with it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think the idea of making the, the former, you know, uh, guy that we don't like in the last movie, right, the industrialist publisher yeah. uh, here, they made him, they made that role, the soft edged bumbling guy, and they gave the hard edge to the idiot. And I just don't think it works. I, I think as a result, we don't understand or like either of them. Uh and I and I was I was super frustrated by that. Um the the brain control, mind control uh gag at the end, um mm-hmm. that's that's supposed to be the big hero moment where uh Carell's character is supposed to uh sort of unveil his his hidden um, his hidden confidence, his hidden power, and take back some control over his uh, uh, boss.
1: Yeah, the man who also stole his wife. Yes. From him,
0: yes. I Galifianakis, I, obviously I've, I've already, I think I used the words he made my skin crawl in this movie. I, I felt like they did such a disservice to this connective tissue right in the middle of the movie where we're supposed to get a sense of where our idiot works. And they lost it because I think what made the heart of dinner for uh, of of the dinner game uh, beat so beautifully, so strongly is that these two guys, the tax collector and the idiot himself who works in that office. They were actually they had an affinity for one another. They kind of liked each other. They had that camaraderie around the um, the the you know football games and and they yelled at each other and it was just really charming and great. And in this movie, it was just Galifianakis doing his thing. Uh, it was it was a, the between two ferns version of that character, and it just didn't work. I think without giving uh, Barry an anchor in into the world. Um, I, I think we we lose a lot. I don't think if you just watch this movie by itself, you would not know that, right? You would not see what's missing, and and what's missing is a connection to from Bear, between Barry and the world and his world that reminds him that there are that he's part of a lot of people who are just like him, uh, and he doesn't see the fact that he is he's the idiot in, in a way that I think is really heartwarming. This movie sucked that out of it.
1: I think that the original, they they hint at what to expect from the dinner game because you get the guy who opens the film mm-hmm. with his boomerang collection, you know, kind of a peculiar character. And now you have this, this guy who builds uh, famous structures out of matchsticks. So you can get a sense of where they're going, but you don't go too far down that line. In this film, uh, I was like, okay, I... I I couldn't help but agree to a certain extent with Barry at some point where he's just like, "All oh, these, this is a dinner with all these amazing people with all these great skills. I'm like, well, yeah, there's some, you know, that's the struggle I have with these kind of these bullies who pick these people because there's a thing about them that they are calling them idiots is that like what what is the definition that these guys are are pulling for because i mean i would say i'd probably have a different definition of what that what an idiot is and i just I'm like i so i ended up struggling as i was watching such a strange group of people like the blind uh fencer and the guy with the vulture and the woman who speaks to dead animals and uh, you know i just like okay there's a lot of peculiarities here but to call them idiots, I was like, I, I feel like there's a very different definition as to what they're looking for there. And so I, I ended up, well, because we show so much of the dinner, I felt like, OK, I feel like they're shooting themselves in the foot by choosing to actually show the dinner because now they're having to pick these people. And I'm like, I just don't think that that's what this dinner is.
0: Uh, and, I, you know, in in some respects, that's the same challenge that I had with the with the last movie. Right. What what is an idiot? What was so beautiful about the word, uh, as we discussed last week, is that it really, you know, culturally means both of those guys. So you already know going in that both of them, depending on who you are, is the idiot, is the comb. And in this movie, I I think there is less uh, of that sort of cultural identity around schmuck. Schmuck is is has been, I think, uh, used in such a way that it is by default. Less than. That's what certainly the Bruce Greenwood faction is demonstrating. Right. There's there's nothing you want to do to Ron Livingston, but punch him in the face like it's, yeah. it is because because he so clearly demonstrates that anyone is less than him. If he's not, if, if they don't sort of work in that office and strive for that, that big corner office, that, that sort of experience.
1: Yeah, like the guy who Tim is trying to you know fill the spot of, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you almost feel like these guys would just bring him to dinner.
0: Yeah, and so
1: just because he wasn't good enough to be in their club, so it it made for a big struggle. And um, yeah, so but that and that was you know a whole question I had looking at Francis Weber and these different remakes of his. Is there is there a better way to go when you're doing remakes? Because I mean, The Birdcage was largely. Very similar to its original Lakaja fall, this is a very different way to shape uh, the dinner game is is there a better way to make a remake does it work to do it this way or is is one you know better than the other i don't know
0: i don't know i mean i think the birdcage was such a terrific example of when to sort of time the cultural market to to sell that particular message in another movie i think it just it just worked i think they set it in the right time in the right place and and it it was such an appealing cross-cultural examination of moral majority and identity and secrets. And we had trouble with the kids, but, you know, largely the movie was was great. Um, and I think last week's movie, again, largely was, uh, wh- you know, it was handled with a bit of sensitivity, I think, that that lets you in and around. And this movie, this was the last thing I feel like we talked about right before we closed the show last week. This movie is so... American. i mean not just yeah. western but american and uh not in a good way right? right it's not representative of our of of you know what we may know as our sort of kinder nature that does exist <laughs> <It's in> there <laughs> like we know how to have fun and we know how to laugh and we know how to do these things and this just made two unlikable people uh confused and unlikable in in other ways through through context, I, I get the feeling that Roach and team hadn't seen the movie that I saw in dinner for, in the dinner game. That's what it felt like to me. They were remaking a different movie.
1: I end up feeling when I watch a remake like this that they almost didn't like the original. <laughs> they yeah. said, Let's let's do something a little more just to make it, you know, f- we'll flesh it out. We'll really kind of make it actually have a real story.
0: Well, it's so, OK. But case example. Right. This is the Americanism of it. Right. If oh, we yeah. put if we push a door open gently in the original, we're going to throw the door open and nail it open in this one. And I think the example here is when the uh, uh, the other woman shows up and ends up in, you know, doing her like shows up in like leather and lace and she's you know they they have that chase with barry around the apartment just destroying the apartment uh and um it is it ends up being a weirdly sort of tasteless i didn't find it particularly funny at all uh romp kind of a a destructive romp through uh tim's life yeah that that did not get to the the sort of humor and the sense and sensibility of the original it did not carry that at all it just was blunt force trauma to the original idea
1: it was it was it, it that didn't work for me at all it was just like a nonsense way to rework the uh, the character that he had slept with right yeah. it just it turned it into kind of over the top nonsense that being said, I want to bring up the the later scene with with Darla uh, at some other point because I actually like. Well, let's that do one it. Are you talking about
0: the the restaurant?
1: That's the one scene in this movie that I'm like they nailed everything in that scene. The way that it plays out, the way that the uncomfortable awkwardness kicks in when uh, when <laughs> Barry walks in with Darla. And like, because it was going well, you had the Swedish couple kind of talking with with Tim about everything, and then all of a sudden that happens, and that was so funny, because they want the proposal, and Darla is so excited, and she's totally into it. Like I was like, "God, this is this is what this whole movie should have been." It was just spot on, perfect. And then his actual girlfriend shows up, yeah. and it just it's just like that constant escalation. I'm like, oh, "This was genius. This was, I think, the the best of Jay Roach." Right. This is the sort of comedy that I think he does really well in Meet the Fockers, and in Austin Powers. It's just like it just was that. Amplification of one thing after the other that kept working and making it a better and better scene. And for me, I was like, uh, like watching Darla as she's practically in tears as he's proposing to her. I was just like, this was, that was the moment for me of this film. And I kept hoping for more scenes like that to come out of this. And it just never did. So, so. I don't know if you liked it as much as I did, but for me, that scene was just spot on perfect.
0: Well, I have I I do have some things also that I I liked about the movie. That scene is one of them and and I'm right with you. The the sort of layering, the comedy layering that he does but he still works small, right? I mean, there it it, it is an intimate scene in the movie and it it's big laughs. Right. It's when it yeah. becomes so big back at the apartment destruction scene with Darla. It's so big. It's such a big sort of comedic set piece. It no longer works for me. It's like come off the rails. This one intimate at the restaurant plays on language, plays on misunderstandings, uh, mistaken identities. Those kinds of things are, are I think, true to the source material uh, in, in a way that that earned the remake for me. Uh, I, yeah. I'd i like to to talk a little bit, though, about Jermaine Clement.
1: Before we do, I, just, I there's one last thing that I, I wanted to say, uh, and I can't remember how I got distracted from it, but you were talking about this film feeling very American, and mm-hmm. the one thing that I, I really felt also said this is an American remake is the fact that in this version, they really, really felt that these two guys, you have to believe that they're going to be best friends by the end of the movie, and, you know— that's the American way, right? Of mm-hmm. of telling a story like this. Tim learns his lesson, and by the end, you're having Steve's or uh, Barry's voiceover explaining how everything worked out for everybody. And of course, you know Barry and Tim are buddy buddy. And I would never believe that at the end of the French film
0: that those two guys
1: ever would have been friends afterward. <laughs>
0: Right, right. And they leave it up in the air. Like there is a there, there yeah. is a possibility somewhere that those two guys would end up being friends, that it transcended the the uh oh you're an idiot. You make so many mistakes on the phone to oh, that's just part of who he is. Kind of relationship. Right. Yeah. I I can buy that, but they left it open to us to dissect it. And I think you yes. I think you're right. This movie yeah. is that's a particularly American thing. All right. So Jermaine Clement as Kieran. Um what do you think of this character?
1: You know, I like Jermaine Clement. I like him a lot. I think he's just a really funny guy. I think his character of Karen here is a really funny character. I don't know if I needed us to go down this road with yet another crazy character. Like, I felt like they're taking the farce, the level of it, and they keep pushing it higher and higher to the point where I'm just like, I just don't end up buying any of these characters because the level of the comedy has pushed so far out of the realm of anything that I would say is believable it, to a point where I'm just like, I, I just don't know the one character that I feel like, you know what? He's an artist. He's crazy. I kind of buy <laughs> as this crazy character. I, I don't know if I completely like him, but there is a level of him that I buy. And I think yeah, that's kind yeah. of funny.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, and I'm I you, the way just watching you stumble uh, around your own opinion of this <laughs> it delights me because that's what's going on in my head. It's like my inner Andy is just doesn't know what to do with himself. Um I I really like the character. Like I think it's super funny and it's one of those ancillary characters, right? Those kind of bench strength characters that I walk away from the movie thinking I know in my heart of hearts that that was enough. That it was enough, Jermaine Clement with the horns and everything. But I do also kind of subversively want more of him and less of everyone else.
1: Well, I think it's because he had a line, and I wrote it down here.
0: Like these two women, I'm going to make love to these women. That's who I am.
1: (laughs) No, but I think for me, it was a moment of of clarity. Like he's a crazy character. He's dressing crazy. He's doing Mm -hmm. crazy things. Uh, But he has one moment where I'm like, whoa, okay, I feel like he is a character who acknowledges his level of insanity. And he says, when he's dressed as a goat and he's getting ready to make love to those two women, he says, I'm just a goat who is halfway through eating itself. (laughs) And and I
0: was was like,
1: I think he gets it. Like, I think he actually is the one... <laughs> this film
0: gets it. He's the only one who gets it because he is. He's true to, to himself. He is like you can imagine the first time he puts on the goat the ram's horns and the loincloth and the and the legs, uh, that everybody would look at him like they look at Steve Carell at Barry with the the mice collecting the dead mice off the street, right? You you know that that's how it starts. But he is the case example of what happens when you just keep going and you keep putting the goat on and you keep taking pictures, and uh and and I I like that. I kind of like that message. He's not a likable guy, but I find him very funny, and and I like I, I like what he represents in the movie. Now, the problem I have with with that character in particular is that it is one more in a parade of faces right because we've got we've obviously have carell and rudd and then we have galifianakis introducing you know Jermaine clement and then we have all of the other guys uh you know um uh, larry wilmore who i think is a genuinely funny guy he he probably fits the part here well but he's just you know ends up being another face with Ron Livingston uh we have David Williams uh Bruce Greenwood uh we can't forget Kristen Schaal who is another iconic comedic voice right now there are so many of these uh these big faces that for some reason I find myself the more I'm awash in in the mechanics that they have to put into play to make the script work with all these people and all the different set pieces and now we're going to dinner and we have to meet all the other people who are there like it just loses so much uh, through distraction. And I'm with you. I don't think we need all of it. We certainly don't need, easily don't need half of it.
1: And I I think the thing with, with Jermaine Clement, again, I kind of end up buying his character... He's purely there to really kind of be a, another foil for, and, and we have a similar character. We just never really meet him except for a phone call uh, in the original. Um, but it's really there for the wife, uh, you know, for or for the girlfriend, Stephanie mm-hmm. so, so, uh, Showstack, who who plays Tim's girlfriend here. Yes, and it's really just an opportunity to give her somebody to potentially um, be more involved with, and. I, you know I, and i don't know uh julie her character stephanie showstacks character was also one that i'm like yeah you know okay they gave uh they gave a little more to but i don't know if i ever really cared that much and i don't know i, I felt like they like you were saying they stacked it so high with with different actors and stuff that by the time uh you know we're with stephanie and spending time with her i'm like gosh i kind of like you know, I, I just don't know if there's that much with her that I find that interesting.
0: Yeah. Maybe I, we
1: needed a straight person, though. I don't know.
0: Uh, maybe, but you know, I, don't we get the sense that that person exists even in the original, that even though we don't see her as much in the movie, do we really need to follow her to the affair? Do we need to follow her to the farm, so to speak? Do we need to follow her and meet the character? I, I think that is the, that that becomes sort of low-hanging fruit in the adaptation, like, oh, what could we do different? Well, one thing we could do different is actually follow the wife and make her a yeah. character of some agency, but I think in doing so while it might be well intentioned, uh, I, I think it it is it, it is a distraction. Um and, and so that's that's frustrating. I don't think her line, her storyline was that good. Uh, you know, when we when we follow him following her more aggressively, uh, it becomes less funny and and more of just a you know, romp
1: through the streets. Yeah, there's a little less um excitement because we know it's her and it's like, yeah, she's kind of just the straight yeah, the straight the lady, keys, like no name key key actress gag. who is yeah. just there because Hollywood needs to cast somebody <laughs> in the role. Yeah. yeah, I
0: get it. Again, well intentioned. Absolutely, yeah. I get it. But I, I just don't. I just don't think we needed that. But I think the bigger question is: uh, Did Tim and Julie have anything uh, special like in this movie? They were not married yet. Um, you know, he tried to ask her. I'm not sure what the significance is of the fact that he keeps asking and asking and she keeps saying no. Um, You know, in the original movie, they were already married. Well, Um, I felt
1: it was that she, she wasn't, I think that they kind of made it feel like she would marry him when he figured out where to kind of set his loyalties and i think it was a lot of it was his loyalties were still at the office and trying to prove that he was uh, he has that whole speech at the end when she's standing behind him and he doesn't realize it Mm -hmm. and i think that that's the direction that they're pushing with the whole thing Is she wanted him to feel like he was being more authentic with her and all the stuff he was doing at work obviously wasn't getting him there the very hollywood that felt so scripted
0: Yes, it's very, very scripted. Yeah, I think that's that's probably why it feels like such a such a distraction is because we're coming off of a film that that had, you know, sort of no such allegiance. Yeah, Ugh, which yeah. is too bad because I actually I mean, Stephanie Shostak, I haven't seen a lot of her work, but she's been in a bunch of stuff. Um, she's uh, just wrapped up million little things. Looks like is I don't I don't I think it's done. Uh, but, you know, she was in uh, Iron Man 3. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Yeah. She was
1: in a a number of different films for uh, uh, kind of there's a big burst of them in the kind of 08 to 2011 or so, whereas like or even a little past that, if you go through 2016, uh, she's just busy, busy, busy. And uh, yeah, and then she's done some TV and um, but, you know, I think that she's somebody I I don't want to fault anything on her. I thought she performed it fine. I just think that the way that it's written is it ended up feeling very much like the way Hollywood often writes the the wife or the spurned girlfriend role. You know, mm-hmm. it's just like she's there just to help the guys become friends. You know, it just ends up, it just doesn't end up feeling like there's really much there for her.
0: Anybody else in particular you want to talk about in this movie besides the fact that...
1: I just have to say, I love Bruce Greenwood. I want Bruce Greenwood to be uh in my family. Like yeah. he's just the greatest. And I I really have a problem seeing him be so mean and hateful. Like he's I'm just like, that's not the Bruce
0: that I know. That's, he's certainly not, not the Bruce that's my uncle. No. That's right. <laughs> certainly not that Bruce. That Bruce, <sighs> you know, uh, my is is I mean, <sighs> he's so he's Pike. He's yeah. Pike. He's going to show up at my house, and he's going to bring me some Krispy Kremes, and he's going to be wearing the gold shirt. <laughs> and he's going to say, "Yeah, yeah he's going to say some What's good
1: interesting is, so this came out in 2010, the same year that he was also in Meeks Cut Off, which we've talked about on the show. Yeah, and I will say the thing that I do love about Bruce Greenwood, and and always have, is that I feel like. He has a lot of range. He's a guy who's all over the place as far as what he can do on screen. And and clearly, 2010 was a year of some broad stretches, because kind of the crazy Stephen Meek, the titular character in that film, and then this guy here. Um, plus, he had another film in 2010, Barney's version, which I haven't even seen. And it was Star Trek the year before, Super 8 the mm-hmm. year after. I mean, he's just such a busy guy, I just, I really love what he brings to the screen. So,
0: great seeing him. He's played the president in several movies. Are you looking, or can you name them without looking? I can't remember
1: if it was both of the Kingsman films. No, it was just the second one, because we never went to America in the first one.
0: Um, That's true.
1: And then he was, uh, of course um it's just oh uh what's it called 10, ten days or uh, something in october <laughs> what's that movie called the one where he's uh isn't he jfk in that uh movie about uh the Cuban Missile crisis with I, Kevin would, I,
0: I would like you to get the number of days right if this is 13 thirteen, days, 13 13 days, days. Andy, yes oh man I knew but I was wrong. Is, I, was, I was going back to Eisenstein and <laughs> ten yeah, days the in Russian October. Revolution. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but that's not the—that is only the second of three times that oh, he has played the president. That's See, he just has a—he president. should be president he should because be he president just looks like why. somebody yes. who is the president.
1: Um, boy, a third time. Is this something I've seen?
0: God, I hope so. Because this is this is a part of a duo of films, although he was only in the second one where that should be on this show. If not legitimately, then certainly is Guilty Pleasures. Hmm. I don't know. What is it? Two thousand seven National Treasure Book of Secrets. Oh.
1: Okay. I should have known that. Yeah. I should have known that because I I have seen
0: those and I actually
1: do very much remember because he has to kidnap, Nicolas Cage has to kidnap him and then they have the whole whole conversation. Yes, I remember. It was in the trailer he is so presidential,
0: even in that movie. I would want that president to be our president. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Even kidnapped by Nicolas Cage, (laughs) which is not outside the realm of possibility.
1: That's right. That's true. All right. It could happen. (laughs) <laughs> totally,
0: <laughs> uh, Steve Carell. I don't think we have anything else to say about Steve Carell, other than isn't it great that he could do this movie as his audition for Welcome to Marwin?
1: <laughs> Boy, I tell you, man, yeah, seeing him working with those mice, I'm like, wow, I feel like this was totally a prequel. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very weird <laughs> prequel. The you know, uh, we didn't mention that this is, I think, is this by the time we got to this one, the third time that he and Paul Rudd had worked together. Because there was there was um, Anchorman,
0: mm-hmm. and,
1: and there was the forty year old virgin. Forty year old
0: virgin was and Anchorman then... two
1: before or after this? It was
0: after Anchorman two was two thousand thirteen.
1: Yes, that was after.
0: Yeah, they're
1: in that group, kind of that that club of actors who uh, work a lot together in uh, you know. This this type of comedy, right? They do a lot of yeah. these uh, films, whether it's um, working with, uh, Judd Apatow or different filmmakers like who are making these sorts of films. I feel like they just end up kind of tapping into that same group, and so end up in a lot of films with each other. And I maybe they're maybe that's it, but I I, I can't help but feel like there are more that they've done together.
0: Yeah, they call them the frat pack. Is what they oh. is what that group is called, um, and it is a group that is considered to include Ben Stiller, Owen Wilson, Luke Wilson, Will Ferrell, Steve Carell, and can you name him? I think you can. Double V. I don't know Vince Vaughn. <laughs> oh. Vince Vaughn, and um, and so they, That's, uh, which is weird that,
1: because I don't th- I don't see him in the pack. I know, except for maybe like old school.
0: That's right, weird. and then he immediately transcended the pack right he left it uh, you know he left the pack it. uh before so this was apparently and i'm i'm looking at wikipedia now and so you know apparently the reference the first reference was from usa today that dubbed them as the frat pack in 2004 but it was entertainment weekly who had earlier uh, referred to them as the slacker pack because they, Entertainment Weekly had already used Frat Pack to describe another group, Leonardo DiCaprio, Tobey Maguire, Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, and Edward <laughs> Norton, who were already the Frat Pack. Had been, they'd been already taken up. So uh, Interna- Entertainment Weekly dropped Slacker Pack, and they now have used Frat Pack, and it is back to the Wilsons, Farrell, Carell, Vaughn, and Stiller.
1: Well, so what's Leonardo DiCaprio's group called now? Do they did. They get their name <laughs> they usurped. Neither, they don't get a name they anymore. They have
0: no name. They have no name anymore. So it was taken of away.
1: Toby's involvement. They said, That's "You right. know what? It's because of Spider-Man 3. You're. You're. Well,
0: <laughs> he ruined it for thinking, everybody. I was thinking of Molly's game more specifically. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but what I was really looking for is uh, if we could find. Yes, indeed. Okay, so what were we looking at? We were looking at films that they uh, have done together. Uh, Oh, see, and they also include guys like David Koechner and Seth Rogen. Um, It's just, yeah, and they're all constantly doing things together. I feel like
1: it's just, it is, it does feel very much like some club.
0: Yes, yes, it does. 40-year-old virgin, uh, he was not in Night at the Museum, Sausage Party. Who are you looking at? Well, I'm looking at Paul Rudd and all of his minor roles. And seeing where Carell overlaps, Steve Carell, Anchorman. Did you know
1: Steve Carell was in Curly Sue?
0: No, I did not know that. I didn't either. That's they were also. He was also me. in Wake Up, Ron Burgundy, The Lost Movie. Uh, they were. Oh, in, that's just like one of those short, yeah, 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 things.
1: Yeah, maybe it is only the few. Anchorman, Forty Year Old Virgin. Uh, I'm just going through Carell's. Filmography here. Boston
0: animated the Vegas Spectacular they were in together.
1: (laughs) Dinner for Schmucks, Anchorman 2. Yeah.
0: That Uh. was it. Not a huge crossover on the frat pack.
1: I do like them on screen together. Um,
0: I I think that they
1: have good chemistry. They work well together and they do the comedy. They do it nice. Um, They they do do nice comedy comedy here. They do it
0: nice. Andy Nelson, (laughs) the next reel.
1: Uh, Put that on on a shirt. There you go. Yep.
0: Did we mention Octavia Spencer's in this? Oh my God, man! The Idiots' dinner is—I just—it's I, a—it's a who's who of like, why did they agree to do this movies?
1: Chris O'Dowd, Octavia Spencer, Chris O'Dowd. Uh, okay, Patrick Chris O'Dowd Fishler. was funny. <laughs> yeah, Rick the blind Overton, swordsman. Yep, Chris O'Dowd. He's pretty funny.
0: <sighs> so Jeff there was things in there. Yeah, uh, uh, Octavia Spencer. What would you think? I mean, she's she's an award. I just love performer. Octavia
1: Spencer. This was we first noticed her. Way back in 99 and being John Malkovich in her little, you know, brief scene in the elevator. I think at this point in her career, she was still just doing a lot of just little fun bit parts, you know, just kind of all over the place in whatever whatever kind of she had the opportunity to do and show what sort of talent she had. The very next year is when she does the help, and that's really kind of her transition into much bigger opportunities because of her Oscar win with that film, and she's just done, man, she's just done so much stuff, and I, I've i always loved seeing her on screen, and she's just uh, fun. She's fun in her weird little role that she has here where she communes with the death lobsters on the table. <laughs> oh, dear.
0: You still haven't watched her um, Apple TV Plus show, truth be told. I have, I have not. Andy, you gotta watch that. She's a podcaster. It's like it's made for us.
1: It really is. Yeah. Yeah. But is there a podcast about it that I can listen to instead?
0: (laughs) I'm sure there is.
1: (laughs) I'm sure there is. Oh, boy. Okay. Um, You know, one other thing I wanted to say uh, about the way that this script unfolds, and I think further evidence about the point that we were talking about with Tim and Barry and their friendship and Tim's relationship with Julie. By the time we're all at Kieran's secret getaway ranch. All of our characters are there. And I'm just like, Tim has so much time and opportunity to talk to Julie, the love of his life, about everything going on. But what happens is he ends up in you know oh you know Barry overhears him talking about him and is really depressed and goes out inside and stands in the pond and Tim instead of focusing on his girlfriend goes out and joins Barry to have a conversation with him making up with him i'm like your girlfriend is the one you need to be making up with and that's like the whole issue in this film is like and that's why it's it's just it's it's frustrating because yeah. Julie is left by the wayside because they've really made this a focus on the relationship between the men and it's just yeah. it's frustrating
0: Jim denault is behind the camera uh some fine comedic camera work uh, in this movie I do like uh, Jim Denault. I look at his credits I hadn't put together so many of the things that he's done um he is uh, currently uh looks like just wrapped Yellowstone uh seven episode. Uh, series and uh, the affair which was uh very popular with my mother uh but he's done a lot of a lot of other uh, movies and tv shows that i think are are certainly worth noting even more so trumbo which i thought was he was terrific wayward pines the tv series the amazon uh series was exceptional um uh silicon valley he did seven episodes uh and uh uh, which is uh, another great sort of comedy um, comedy train there and um, but he's got seventy four credits uh, to his name and some some great work. And a variety, which I yeah, think... It's variety. interesting,
1: because sometimes you see people who are doing, like, these comedy films, and you look at their list, and it's all that genre. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of all over the place. Like, he's done some indie films, like Maria Full of Grace, Boys Don't Cry. Which is great. Yeah, yeah and and it's great to see that kind of balance. But then, you know, the musical stuff with, like, Pitch Perfect 2. Perfect,
0: yeah.
1: Uh, more kind of the, the, the tween film, Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants 2. So, I mean, he's really... Uh, he's kind of doing a wide variety of work, which is uh, always nice to see.
0: My big fat Greek uh, but I, too too. Uh.
1: Yeah, I, I feel like it's one of those films, though, where, and I feel like this is a trick with comedy like this, is, is you don't want to overdo the camera work because the film itself is really what needs to sell, right? hmm So, but mm. I, I think that it's fine. I think it's fine here. I will say, Jim yes. DeNolt and I do share a birthday.
0: Do you? So
1: there, Who's... I like him that much more.
0: <laughs> Theodore Shapiro behind the music. Did you he's get a, a great laugh?
1: composer who does good comedy scores. I've always liked that. but But not just comedy scores. Like, he's all over the place. But, I mean, he does a lot of the... He works with the frat pack quite a bit. Blades of Glory, I Love You, Man, Tropic Thunder uh you know he does all of those but then he's also doing stuff like the secret life of walter mitty which has just a a much nicer kind of uh in, introspective feel through it would, with some of that comedy and everything um i i just definitely feel like he's uh uh kind of a fun composer who does uh, oh, he just does comedy
0: music really well I think so, too. But for me, Secret Life of Walter Mitty is absolutely the best thing he's done, followed very quickly by Tropic Thunder. Uh,
1: I would say followed quickly by Captain Underpants, the first epic movie. (laughs) The music in that is so good. It is so good. That's
0: true. You win. That's That's true. But Walter Mitty is still up top. Captain Ultimate Underpants, Tropic Urologist Thunder, I'll let those duke it out. Uh, but I think he's absolutely right. He has a real yeah. sensibility for comic moments. We yes. we should talk a little bit about uh, the, the Weber thing, right? We've just done two pairs of these Weber movies. What's the deal with remaking Weber movies now that we've done these two? What do you think?
1: Well, one, I will, before we say that, I do just want to say I wish that, I know we are kind of unfortunately just focused on films that were more readily accessible there were other films in his library that it was easy to find the american film but not so easy to find the french original
0: mm-hmm.
1: i would love to have had a pairing in this uh where he had a, you know because he has directed both the french and the american remake i would love to have had one of those pairs in this in this list but you know we'll just have to save that for another day Without that, I guess what I would say is, you know, he is a guy who just he's got the comedy down as far as making kind of, I guess what I would say is just kind of big, broad comedy that is uh, easily understandable in many languages. And I think that's why his comedies end up striking a chord with so many people.
0: Uh, There's a fantastic interview uh, with him uh, in. It's by Andrea Meyer and it's over in IndieWire. She did this great interview uh, with him when I think it was when this one came out and she asked a couple of questions that I wanted to to give you some responses here. I'll put the link in the show notes. The first one is uh, she asked, what is it about your films that makes American filmmakers want to remake them? Right. Our central question. I thought it was interesting to get Weber in his own words to tell us. What does he think about this? Uh, and he says, "I think it's because I'm attracted to high con by high concept movies. You know, easy to tell in two words. For instance, I did a film called Le Mendereur here uh, here called A Pain in the A." Uh, Billy Wilder remade it. He made a so-so movie, Buddy Buddy. But if I tell you the story, it's very easy. A man who has to kill the president in a hotel room and a salesman who wants to commit suicide next is next door. And those two guys meet, the suicidal and the killer. I know American studios are attracted by high-concept movies. I was very flattered and then, at the same time, a bit disappointed because he didn't succeed. <laughs> <laughs> And she follows up with this, which is one I think you asked about specifically. She follows up with um, the original version of your films always seems to be superior to the American remake. Even the one you directed, Three Fugitives, was much better in French. <laughs> Why do you think that's the case? Bold, Andrea, bold. <laughs> <Please>. <laughs> and, and he says, uh, it's like in church when we had the mass in Latin. It was more mysterious. Then we translated it in French, and it was not as interesting. It's the same thing with adaptations. In French, we like them because it's more exotic. But what is the point is that it did well. It did $45 gross for a film that cost $16 million. It was kind of a hit, which is what counts in Hollywood. So So I I put that quote in our notes, but didn't give you the question because I wanted you to hear that her question (laughs) directly insults his own remake of The Three Fugitives.
1: That's hilarious. You know, what's funny yeah. is in in preparation for this uh, from between last week and now, I actually did track down The Tall Blonde Man with One Black Shoe. I watched that and I watched The Man with One Red Shoe, which happens to be a very much a guilty pleasure of mine. I love that
0: movie. That's weird. I didn't know that.
1: That is a great example of a pairing that I think that the original works and the remake ends up Kind of doing doing it justice. So I'd be curious to think if uh, I am I, I, assuming from this that he didn't think so, but um, I think so. So so there, there Weber. is no
0: mention of that hit pairing in this uh, uh, in this article. <laughs> he does Everybody's say favorite rather favorite pairing. Rather pointedly, he says uh, that he he thinks American and French comedy are dying because there are very few of them that are any good. It's a serious time for movies. Reviewers are very cruel to comedies and nicer to serious movies, the ones who have a kind of meaning that is more than just a joke. I've done two or three serious films, but they haven't done as well as the comedies. People expect me to make them laugh.
1: It's interesting. I feel like it's just the way that people expect the stories to unfold. I don't think people are that keen on movies that are just a joke anymore. I feel like they do want a little bit of a I guess I could say a story that shows it's it's you know, it's kind of grown with the times. I think storytelling has definitely changed with the times. I don't think people want that simple of a story they want it to be a little bigger and maybe that's Mm -hmm. why the american need to retell this story and throw so much more into it is uh, what happened
0: i've studied the human mind i've learned how to read it and ultimately control it oh i can't move oh buried move just move i can't yeah you can i can't i release you oh
1: so before we go Uh, I have a few random little points that I want to bring up. One, this was an interesting little uh, note. The dinner scene was filmed in the same location as the Wayne Manor was for the Batman TV show.
0: Get in the, what was it? It was in the bookcase. It wasn't the fireplace. Somebody pull the lever, pull the book.
1: All right. Escape from that uh, fire in the living room.
0: Right. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> the other thing I wanted to say uh, before we go is that those mouse dioramas, which actually are really fantastic, yeah. and uh, which uh, Barry calls his masterpieces, they are created by the Chiodo brothers. It's a, it's a trio of siblings who do a lot of really interesting work. And I just, I had no idea that uh, this sort of work is not what they're as well known for. Their work focuses on special effects, claymation, creature creation, stop motion, animatronics. They worked on killer clowns from outer space. They did the puppets in Critters, Ernest Scared Stupid, Stupid, uh, Team America World Police. They did the, um, the large marge scene in Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Wow. They did the little North Pole uh, stop motion in Elf and uh it's like when you look at all this stuff and like, you're like wow okay these are uh three awesome uh brothers charles stephen and edward and uh, that's the sort of stuff that they're cranking out. And then they go and do these masterpieces for this film. I was like, it's not quite what their normal line of work is, but I thought they did a great job with it.
0: Well, you know what stinks about the whole thing is that the, the entire premise of the movie is based on these people making fun of their work. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, how it works, And I think it's really awesome. <laughs> yeah, I do, too. If
1: a little disturbing. I, yeah. I always, it's like the weird things that taxidermists do with animals. Right. Sometimes. <laughs> right. But, uh, you know. How did uh, how did it do an award season? This wasn't a big award movie, Pete. I know you're hmm. sad with that, but uh, it had one win um, with two nominations. At the Satellite Awards, which I didn't even know what these were, it's an annual award given by the International Press Academy this uh, this was the last year they separated their categories between uh, comedy musicals and drama categories like the Golden Globes. So we had one nomination here for Best Actor in a Comedy or Musical. It was Steve Carell. He, of course, lost to Michael Cera in Scott Pilgrim versus the World, which I would say, thumbs up to that choice. Yep. Second one, the Comedy Awards. And this is a funny award. That IMDb doesn't even have listed this. The comedy awards were run by Comedy Central This was the first year Of the comedy awards uh, Out of two whole years that they had these awards uh, It was the second time Comedy Central tried running some awards And <laughs> failed The comedy awards uh, nominated Zach Galifianakis as best comedy actor And uh, he won So there you go That's very he, telling isn't it? it Right exactly Oh my goodness how to
0: do <laughs> it at the box office
1: Well, Jay Roach, uh, his inspired adaptation of Weber's story cost a pretty penny, $69 million, wow. or $80.7 in today's dollars. Why it costs so much, I can only speculate. Surely, The Vulture. After concern about opening mid-July opposite Salt and Inception, this movie was pushed a few weeks back and released wide on July 30th, 2010, opposite Cats and Dogs, The Revenge of Kitty Galore, Charlie St. Cloud, and the limited release of Get Low. It opened in the number two spot behind Inception and ended up making $73 million domestically and thirteen point eight dollars internationally for a total gross in today's dollars of $101.6 million. It did well enough for itself, but it is the lowest adjusted profit per finish minute and profit-to-cost ratio of all the films in this series, landing with an adjusted profit per finish minute of $183,000 and a profit per loss of 1.26 times its original budget. Just scraping by. Still, it is in the green, so it does count as a win.
0: And you know i it does count as a win and it counts as a win. I feel like i I didn't like the movie it's It's not for me. Let's just say that it's just it's just not for me, but i I hope that that doesn't um you know I don't want that to to shine an ill light on Jay Roach because I think he's a funny guy, and I like a lot more of his movies than I don't like um and um uh, you know, I think he has an interesting uh, sensibility. I like a lot of the movies that I would imagine you don't like also. <laughs> <laughs> so I think our oh. our Venn diagram of fans of Jay Roach movies, um, you know, might might not cross over. But you know, I think Bombshell and Trumbo and uh, the Campaign and Meet the Fockers, of course, I, I, you know, those are all uh, for me great experiences. Uh, and I like the Austin Powers movies. So what are you going to do? Um, yeah. They're fun. Meet the parents. They're great. I think he does, I think he does some some generally great work. That makes this movie stand out even more for me, uh, that it is, you know, so far from what I really like about the other movies that he's directed.
1: Yeah, I think that's where I stand too. I, I, I think Jay Roach has done some some good stuff. And then this comes along, and I'm like, gosh, I can't help but feel like uh, and I feel like I am I blame it more on the script than him, because I think when there is some solid comedy in here, I think he can handle it OK. You know, I, I just feel like and maybe just I don't know, maybe he gave the actors too much leeway in some things. Um, I, I don't know if it's the script, if it's him. Uh, David Guillaume and Michael Handelman um, had adapted the script. We didn't bring them up, but I, I don't know where the issue lies, but it's definitely a problematic Jay Roach film for me.
0: With that, Andy, we should probably take it to the mat. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You can see all the movies we've talked about on this very show. If you swipe over in your show notes and tap the word flickchart, it should take you directly to this movie where you can add it to your list and see how it stands up against ours.
1: All right. Before we begin, I do want to point this out. Flickchart allows uh, right now, the way that they're structured, five actors to appear on the starring list. That's all. So they always are debating who are the five who should appear here. Yeah. And in order, this is who they pick. Stephanie Showstack, <laughs> <laughs> number 1 spot. Steve Carell, Jermaine Clement, Zach Galifianakis and Paul what? Rudd.
0: What? Paul Rudd is <laughs> last?
1: I don't even know what to say. Oh, I just had to put that out dear. there. Strange. I don't know what Flickchart uh, may want to re- <laughs> re-evaluate their choices there. First no, up, we know. have Weber versus Weber, Dinner for Schmucks or Lakaja Fall? Well, it'd be uh, La Caja Fall. Lakaja Fall for me. Dinner for Schmucks or The Host? Little Bong Joon-ho. <laughs> the host. I will take The Host. Yes! <laughs> uh oh, oh. Dinner for Schmucks. Come on, Cherry Tom- Moon. Come on, Cherry Moon. <laughs> the, the Thomas Crown Affair remake, the 1999 Pierce Brosnan and Renée Russo version.
0: I think you know, I'm all about that briefcase. Folding uh, up paintings.
1: That's right, I'll take Thomas Crown Affair. Dinner for Schmucks. Or the Little Drummer Girl.
0: Dinner our for favorite, Schmucks.
1: Diane Keaton film. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Turns out there's a line
1: and it's right here. Ugh Yeah, I will, too. That was a tough one. Dinner for Schmucks or Christmas in Connecticut? Oh, Barbara Stanwyck, please. Christmas, please. Dinner for Schmucks or number five in the Apes series, Battle for the Planet of the Apes?
0: You're probably Battle,
1: aren't you? It's got problems, but I will pick Battle. All right, I'll go Battle. Dinner for Schmucks or Windy and Lucy? Not quite Meek's Cutoff, but... Uh, Mm. But another in that vein. I will take Wendy and Lucy. I thought there was some pretty solid stuff in that film. That quiet little film. All right. Yep. Dinner for Schmucks or Outbreak, Helicopter and All? wow. (laughs) (laughs) Outbreak. Yeah. I'll go Outbreak. Dinner for Schmucks or, from 1939, The Hound of the Baskervilles. Yeah. Dinner for Schmucks. I will take the Hound of the Baskervilles. I'll do a little Sherlock Holmes mystery story. Heroin addiction and all.
0: Yeah, the heroin addiction. Yeah. Yeah. It was the dogs in the pits. (laughs) The dogs in... (laughs) Um, Oh, do I want to give this one up? I Honestly, at this point, I don't care. You can have
1: it. You don't have the curse that I do. Or maybe the benefit, every pairing, I have to look at Steve Carell's, like, idiot face on all of these movie <laughs> posters that they bring up. I'm just like, I will pick anything over that face. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's how Flickchart works, but.
0: <laughs> no, I don't think so. That wasn't what they intended.
1: No. I'm sorry. I, I lost track of what your decision was.
0: I just go with the one that's not dinner for
1: sure. How to the Baskervilles. Yes. Okay. Well, that they were close anyway. Hound of the Baskervilles was a 425, Dinner for Schmucks 426. 426 out of 454 on our chart, which puts it at a low 6%. 6% is
0: pretty low. Did you beat that personally? You know,
1: when you're ranking movies, and inevitably there's a percentage ranking of all of them, uh, you know i i don't think it's fair because i don't think that there's a percentage a, a slot in every percentage for a film across all of your rankings i think that there are a lot of really great films and a lot of crappy films and a lot in between i don't think this is a six percent film. Um, yeah. I I ranked this. I, I mean, it has some great moments, and that scene in the luncheon with the the Swiss couple. I mean, that just if the whole film could have been that, it would have been you know a great comedy. Um, as it is, it landed at twenty seven percent on my chart. Thirty one seventy nine out of forty three fifty one.
0: Well, it's lower on yours, but not by much. It it hit a um, uh, let's see, out of fourteen fifty, it hit nine twenty five which is a 36%. And it's all about what it just went up against. Again, like, I feel like there are lots of things I could laugh at in, in this movie, uh, in isolated clips. It's a great movie for YouTube clips. I could find humor. Yeah, 36%. It, I, I At once, I feel like, well, that may be a little low because I do like Steve Carell and Paul Rudd. And then I realize I just saw the movie and maybe it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's okay right where it is if i'm to go by the algorithm uh over at letterboxcom slash the next real this should be a two-star uh movie and i'm i'm wondering if if that restaurant scene is enough maybe the redemption little bit of an attempt at redemption at the dinner is enough to keep it at two stars could be one and a half yeah it's two
1: stars for me two stars no like um and I feel like it earns a lot of those two stars from those comedy moments that work really well. Okay, all right, two stars and those mice. I just the two stars the, no know, like. Those mice were great. All
0: right, oh, those two stars straight. and
1: a like from you. Okay,
0: no, no, no like, no like. Get that like off of there.
1: Oh, okay, sorry, two stars, no like across yeah. the board.
0: Then all right, yeah. there it is. No, Dinner for schmucks. I feel like we're gonna. Get, I feel like we're gonna get some guff because you know. Uh, do you remember when? When the was women. It? I feel like people
1: were angry at us because of our. Oh yeah, of the women. No.
0: hands down. Uh, it was not long ago that Steve picked dinner for schmucks. It was in uh, November twenty third, twenty nineteen. He picked dinner dinner for schmucks for his Satmat pick. And oh, he our did Saturday matinee show. You're talking yeah, about? Yeah, it was the Saturday matinee show, and it was. Uh... <laughs> was a quote he started with a quote and neither of us could remember the quote like it didn't ring a bell at all and i i'm watching this movie and thinking about that and realizing now i remember why i didn't remember the quote at all <laughs> not even a little bit so i, I don't I'm even sorry, remember Steve. what
1: quote he used
0: yeah That's right it <laughs> that was his number one pick that week. wow
1: yeah. i bet it was that goat line i'm just a goat who is halfway through eating itself so. <laughs>
0: Just maybe that's where, the, own philosophy. that's where the extra half star is. That line. Is <laughs> well, that's the end uh, of our uh, series on Weber and the remakes. Where do we go from here?
1: Yeah, I, I do want to look at more Weber films, but uh, we'll just have to do that on our own. But I am curious about more of his stuff because I, I really do like seeing the French originals. So I'm curious to see more. Uh, but we're taking a a uh, turn. Sticking with comedy, though, we're going to be looking at uh, as, as some Cary Grant films. I shouldn't say straight-up comedy, There's, uh, but I think that he's an actor who definitely brings some of that to his films. We're starting with Arsenic and Old Lace, Frank Capra's film from 1944. Then we're going to be uh, getting another Hitchcock on our list with uh, one of my favorite Hitchcocks. Uh, which is north by northwest from 1959 and we're going to be ending it with one of my uh, favorite films of all time which is charade from
0: 1963.
1: I love it. I uh this and... is going to be just a great series of great films. I can't wait cuz yes. it's like you know kind of wrapping up this, uh, this little stretch before a hiatus. It's like uh, this is uh, makes me happy to Enough. kind of go out this way.
0: It is. It's a great way to. It's a great way to hit the uh, hit the streets. Hit the streets, Sandy. When the movie ends, I don't know. July. I wait a minute. Oh, are we sorry. really taking the July hiatus? <laughs> I like, thought I you feel were like giving we should, me we, that. No, it was. I was, and then I got excited about that because somebody said something else about that. Are we really taking the July hiatus this year? When we've just come out of quarantine, is that really a time to stop podcasting? I just want to plant that as a seed. <laughs> we should think about that. Harder. I
1: guess. I guess people will find out by the time <laughs> July hits if That's we're right. take a break or not.
0: We may not be. We may be here. I don't even know. When the movie ends. Why
1: don't we just make it a a daily show for the
0: month of July? (laughs) Just throwing it out there. You're right. It's good. We already produced (laughs) enough damn stuff anyway. Oh, when the movie ends. Our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andrew. Does Amazon always doeth. it? Mm, Amazon, um, I, there's, I. It's better. It's better this time. People are opinionated. Yes, yes. <laughs> and it's, Garden, it, it's yes. a little.
1: I would say it's a little more spread on Amazon than often we find. When it seems to, I think a lot of movies tend to be, for people who decide I'm going to leave a review on Amazon, a lot of them are five star review people.
0: Yeah, Unless right. they're
1: complaining about the quality of
0: the transfer right. or subtitles or something Some sort like of that. shipping thing, or it's a regional issue, won't play, or, of course, I don't like to read my movies, you know. Yes, but this yes. one, in fact, we have a couple of, uh, of good reviews. You, did you go low or high?
1: I went high because I ranked it pretty low.
0: I think that's a strong opening move, Andy. Why don't you go ahead?
1: I have a uh, five-star. I was going to say a one-star. but like, oh, no, no, wait. I have a five-star by Hope Indang, Indangasi. Oh. I don't know if I'm saying that right, Hope. Hope says, funniest movie I've watched since 2018. I was clapping at the scenes and shouting. My mom thought I was crazy.
0: Don't watch this movie with your mom.
1: I like to think her mom was just in the next room. was that- <laughs> just listening to her <laughs> clapping and shouting. <laughs>
0: I uh, actually went with um, with one that I thought was interesting. It's a one star, and it's from uh, the great uh, Michael Clayton. Uh, oh, we like we like his work. work. We sure do. Uh, we like his work a lot. It, and he says, if you respect yourself and your time, don't watch this. So we've already we're leaning in on self respect, okay. self loathing. Okay. If you start watching this. You will get to a point in the movie where all sense of what basic storytelling is has been abandoned, and you will realize you are just watching pictures, moving on a screen, and hearing voices. At this point, should you continue to watch, it would be a clear sign of self-destructive behavior and lack of self-esteem. The healthy choice would be to heed these words and not start watching at all. A little mm. bit of meditation from Michael Clayton.
1: I wonder if this was before or after George Clooney played him.
0: Well, yeah. I guess I can tell you that. When did? Because when did George Clooney play him? No, uh, it was after. Because this was June thirtieth, twenty nineteen.
1: Oh, that was very definitely after. Definitely so okay, after. it's good to know yeah. that he's kind of moved out of that realm of work and into uh movie critiques on uh, on Amazon.
0: Well, and 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 I should give you a sense. Uh, three-star movie revenge i don't i don't know revenge uh two-star money equalizer two two-star movie um he equalizer actually gets two okay yeah he says of wet bags angel love two-pack baby cloth diaper wet dry bags with two zippered pockets travel beach pool gym bag for swimsuits he gives it a one star and says not waterproof hmm mm. uh don't think twice he gives one star remember wow, don't think okay. twice that we had that as a trailer rewind pick i think the guys like that one yeah. uh, but he does say the anchor dual display universal docking station with dvi hdmi output audio gigabit ethernet two usb 3 ports that's five star it's great so that's what he said it's great he's capable of loving okay good to, good to know back to work everybody all right thanks amazon i've been podcasting since 2006